Marley was dead to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. Scrooge signed it, and Scrooge's name was good upon change for anything he chose to put his hand to. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. Scrooge and he were partners for I don't know how many years. Scrooge was his sole executor, his sole administrator, his sole beneficiary, his sole friend, and sole mourner. And even Scrooge was not so dreadfully cut up by the sad event. And being an excellent man of business, on the very day of the funeral, marked the occasion by securing an undoubted bargain. The mention of Marley's funeral brings me back to the point I started from. There is no doubt that Marley was dead. This must be distinctly understood, or nothing wonderful can come of the story I am going to relate. Scrooge never painted out old Marley's name. There it stood, years afterwards, above the warehouse door. Scrooge and Marley. The firm was known as Scrooge and Marley. Sometimes people new to the business referred to Scrooge as Scrooge, and sometimes Marley, but he answered to both names. It was all the same to him. Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, Scrooge. A squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Hard and sharp as flint from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire. Secret and self-contained and solitary as an oyster. The cold within him froze his features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheeks, stiffened his gait, made his eyes red, his thin lips blue, and spoke out shrewdly in his grating voice. A frosty rhyme was on his head, and on his eyebrows and his wiry chin. He carried his own low temperature always about with him. He iced his coffee in the dog days and didn't thaw it one degree at Christmas. External heat and cold had little influence on Scrooge. No warmth could warm, no wintry weather chill him. No wind that blew was bitterer than he. Nobody ever stopped him in the street to say with gladsome looks, My dear Scrooge, how are you? When will you come to see me? No beggars implored him to bestow a trifle. No children asked him what time it was. No man or woman ever once in all his life inquired the way to such and such a place of Scrooge. But what did Scrooge care? It was the very thing he liked. To edge his way along the crowded paths of life, warning all human sympathy to keep its distance, was the chosen light to Scrooge. <laughs> Once upon a time, of all the good days in the year, on Christmas Eve, old Scrooge sat busy in his office. It was cold, bleak, biting weather. He could hear the people in the court outside go wheezing up and down, rubbing their hands and stamping their feet upon the cobblestones to warm them. The city clocks had only just gone three, but it was quite dark already. It had not been light all day. The fog came pouring in at every chink and keyhole and was so dense without that although the court was very narrow, the houses opposite were mere phantoms. To see the dingy cloud come drooping down, obscuring everything, one might have thought that a storm was brewing. The door of Scrooge's office was open that he might keep his eye upon his clerk, Bob Cratchit, who worked in a dismal little cubicle near the building's entrance. There was a very small fireplace to warm the office, but the fire was so very small that it looked like one coal. But Bob couldn't replenish it, for Scrooge kept the coal box in his own room, and so surely as the clerk came in with the shovel, Scrooge would point out it was nearly time to leave. So the clerk put on his white comforter and tried to warm himself with a candle, but not being a man of strong imagination, 
he failed. <laughs> Merry Christmas, Uncle. God save you. It was the voice of Scrooge's nephew who came in so quickly that Scrooge hadn't heard his approach. Ah, humbug. A Christmas a humbug, Uncle? You don't mean that, I'm sure. I do. Merry Christmas. What right have you to be merry? What reason have you to be merry? You're poor enough. Oh, come then. What right do you have to be dismal? What reason do you have to be morose? You're rich enough. Ah, humbug. Oh, don't be cross, Uncle. What else can I be when I live in such a world of fools as this? Merry Christmas. What's Christmas time to you but a time for paying bills without money? A time for finding yourself a year older but not an hour richer? A time for balancing your books and finding every item counts toward your debt? If I could work my will, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled with his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart he should. Uncle! Nephew! Keep Christmas in your own way and let me keep it in mine. Oh, keep it. You don't keep it. Let me leave it alone, then. Much good may it do to you. Much good has it ever done to you. There are many things for which I might have derived good by which I have not profited. Christmas among the rest, but I am sure I have always thought of Christmas time uh, beyond the sacred of its namesake and origin, if anything could be good apart from that. As a good time, a kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time. Uh, the only time that I know of, in a long calendar of the year, when men and women all seem to open their shut-up hearts freely and to think of others as if they really were fellow travelers in this life. And not bothersome creatures bound up in their own journeys. And therefore, uncle, though it has never put a scrap of gold or silver in my pocket, I believe that it has done me good and will do me good. (laughs) And I say, God bless it. The clerk in the tank involuntarily applauded, becoming immediately sensible of the impropriety. He poked the fire and extinguished the last frail spark forever. Let me hear another sound from you, and you'll keep your Christmas by losing your situation. You're quite a powerful speaker, sir. It's a wonder you don't go into Parliament. Uh, Don't be angry, Uncle. Come dine with us tomorrow. I will not. But why, Uncle? Why? Why did you get married? Because I fell in love. Because you fell in love. Good afternoon. No, Uncle. You never came to see me before I got married. Why give it as a reason for not coming now? Good afternoon. I want nothing from you. I ask nothing of you. Why can't we be friends? Good afternoon. I am sorry, with all of my heart, to find you so stubborn. We have never had any fight that I am aware of, yet you will not let me be part of your life. Still, I have given you my annual invite to Christmas. And despite your refusal, I'll keep my Christmas cheer to the last. So a Merry Christmas, Uncle. Good afternoon. And a Happy New Year. Good afternoon. His nephew left the room without an angry word, stopping at the outer door to bestow season's greetings on Bob Cratchit, who, cold as he was, was warmer than Scrooge and returned them cordially. There's another one, my clerk. Fifteen shillings a week with a wife and family talking about a Merry Christmas. It's enough to drive you mad. In letting Scrooge's nephew out, Bob had let two other people in. They were portly gentlemen, pleasant to behold, and now stood with their hats off in Scrooge's office. They had books and papers in their hands and bowed to him. Have I the pleasure of addressing Mr. Scrooge or Mr. Marley? Mr. Marley is dead. He died seven years ago this very night. We have no doubt his liberality is well represented by his surviving partner. Hmm. At 
this festive season of the year, Mr. Scrooge, it is more than usually desirable that we should make some slight provision for the poor and destitute, who suffer greatly at the present time. Many thousands are in need of common necessities. Hundreds of thousands are in need of common comforts, sir. Are there no prisons? Plenty of prisons. And the Union workhouses, are they still open? I wish I could say they were not. The treadmill and the poor law are in full operation, then? Both very busy, sir. Oh, I was afraid from what you said at first that something had occurred to shut them down. I'm very glad to hear it. We believe that they scarcely furnish the Christian cheer of mind or body to the less fortunate. So a few of us are raising funds to buy the poor some meat and drink and means of war. We choose this time because the need is more keenly felt, and goodwill toward man seems more abundant. What shall I put you down for? Nothing. You wish to be anonymous? I wish to be left alone. Since you ask me what I wish, gentlemen, that is my answer. I don't make merry myself at Christmas, and I can't afford to make idle people merry. I help to support the establishments I have mentioned. They cost enough. And those who are badly off must go there. Many can't go there, and many would rather die. If they'd rather die, then they had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Besides, it's none of my business. But it might be. It's enough for a man to understand his own business and not to interfere with other people's. Mine occupies me constantly. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Seeing clearly that it would be useless to pursue their point, the gentlemen left. Scrooge resumed his work with an improved opinion of himself and in a more self-satisfied mood than was usual. The fog had gotten thicker still, and the temperature even colder. It was a piercing, biting cold. A young boy, shivering in the cold, stooped down at Scrooge's door to regale him with a Christmas carol, but at the first sound of God bless you married gentlemen, may nothing you dismay, Scrooge seized a ruler, and the singer fled in terror, retreating to the fog and frost, which seemed warmer and friendlier than the atmosphere of Scrooge's office. Soon it was time to close shop, With an ill will, Scrooge admitted the fact to Cratchit, who instantly snuffed his candle out and put on his hat. You'll want all day tomorrow, I suppose. If quite convenient, sir. It's not convenient, and it's not fair. If I was to dock your pay, you'd think I was taking advantage of you. And yet, you don't think me taking advantage of when I pay a day's wages for no work. But but it's only once a year, sir. A poor excuse for picking a man's pocket every 25th of December. But I suppose if you must have the whole day, be here all the earlier the next morning. The office was closed in a twinkling, and the clerk, with the long ends of his white comforter dangling below his waist, before he had no overcoat, went down a slide on Cornhill at the end of a line of boys in honour of its being Christmas Eve, and then ran home to Camden Town as fast as he could to play at Blind Man's Bluff with the children. Scrooge took his melancholy dinner in his usual melancholy tavern, and having read all the newspapers and spent the rest of the evening with his banker's book, went home to bed. He lived in chambers which had once belonged to Jacob Marley, a gloomy suite of rooms in an old dreary building that nobody lived in but Scrooge, the other rooms being rented out as offices. The yard was so dark that even Scrooge, who knew its every stone, had to grope with his hands. The fog and frost hung so thick about the old black gateway of the house that it seemed as if Jack Frost himself sat in mournful meditation on the threshold. Now, there was nothing at all particular about the knocker on Scrooge's door, except that it was very large, and Scrooge had seen it night and morning during the whole time he had lived there. 
also that Scrooge had as little of what is called imagination about him as any man in the city of London. Also bear in mind that Scrooge had not given one thought to Marley since his last mention of his dead partner that afternoon. And then explain to me, if you can, how it happened that Scrooge, putting his key in the lock, saw not the knocker, but Marley's face. Marley's face. It was not an impenetrable shadow as the other objects in the yard were, but had its own light about it. It was not angry or ferocious, but looked at Scrooge as Marley used to look, with spectacles turned up on his ghostly forehead. The hair was curiously stirred, as if by breath or hot air, and though the eyes were open, they were perfectly motionless. That and its livid colour made it frightening. Then, as Scrooge looked intently at this phenomenon, it was a knocker again. To say that he was not startled or that his blood did not run cold would be untrue. But he put his hand upon the key, turned it, walked in, and lit his candle. He did pause a moment before he shut the door and looked cautiously behind it first, as if he half expected to be terrified by the sight of the back of Marley's head sticking out into the hall. But there was nothing on the back of the door except the screws and nuts that held the knocker on. So he closed it with a bang. The sound resounded through the house like thunder. Scrooge was not a man to be frightened by echoes. He walked across the hall and up the stairs, slowly trimming his candle as he went. You could easily drive a horse and carriage up the old flight of stairs sideways. There was plenty of width for that and room to spare, which is perhaps the reason why Scrooge thought he saw a hearse going up before him in the gloom. Half a dozen street lamps wouldn't have lit the entry too well, so you may suppose that it was pretty dark with Scrooge's lone candle. But up Scrooge went, not caring a bit about that. Darkness is cheap, and Scrooge liked it. But before he shut his heavy door, he walked through his rooms to see that all was right. He had just enough memory of the face to want to do that. Sitting room, bedroom, spare room, all as they should be. Nobody under the table, nobody under the sofa... A small fire in the grate, spoon and basin ready, and the little saucepan of gruel on the hearth that Scrooge had a cold in his head. Nobody under the bed, nobody in the closet, nobody in his dressing gown, which was hanging up in a suspicious manner against the wall. Spare room again, still empty as usual, old fireplace screen, house shoes, two baskets, wash basin on three legs, and a poker. Quite satisfied, he closed the door and locked himself in. Uh, double locked himself in which was not his custom. Thus secured against surprise, he took off his cravat, put on his dressing gown, slippers and his nightcap, and sat before the fire to eat his gruel. It was a very low fire, indeed, nothing on such a bitter night. He was obliged to sit close to it and brood over it before he could extract the least sensation of warmth from such a small handful of fuel. The fireplace was an old one, built by some Dutch merchant long ago and paved all round with quaint Dutch tiles designed to illustrate the scriptures. There were Cain's and Abel's, Queen's of Sheba, angelic messengers descending on clouds, Abram's, Belshazzar's, apostles putting off to sea in butterboats, hundreds of figures to attract his thoughts, and yet if each tile had been a blank with power to shape some picture from the disjointed fragments of his thoughts, there would have been a copy of old Marley's head on every one. Humbug! As he threw his head back in the chair, his glance happened to rest upon an unused bell that hung in the room, 
and communicated with the chamber in the highest story of the building. It was with great astonishment and with a strange, inexplicable dread that he saw this bell begin to swing. It rang out loudly and was soon joined by every bell in the house. This might have lasted half a minute or a minute, but it seemed an hour. The bells ceased as they had begun together. They were replaced by a clanking noise deep down below, as if some person were dragging a heavy chain over the chests in the cellar. Scrooge then remembered that ghosts in haunted houses were described as dragging chains. Then he heard the noise much louder, coming up the stairs, straight towards his door. It's humbug still. I won't believe it. His colour changed when, without pause, it came through the heavy door and into the room before his eyes. The same face. The very same. Marley, in his usual waistcoat, tights and boots. The chain he drew was clasped about his middle. It was long and wound about him like a tail. And it was made, for Scrooge observed it closely, of cash boxes, keys, padlocks, ledgers, deeds, and heavy purses wrought in steel. His body was transparent so that Scrooge, observing him and looking through his waistcoat, could see the two buttons on his coat behind. Though he looked the phantom through and through and saw it standing before him, though he felt the chilling influence of its cold eyes and saw the texture of the folded kerchief bound about his head and chin, he still doubted his senses. What do you want with me? Much. Who are you? Ask me who I was. Who were you, then? You're particular for a shade. In life, I was your partner, Jacob Marley. Can you... Can you sit? I can. Do it, then. Marley sat down on the opposite side of the fireplace, as if he were quite used to it. You don't believe in me. I don't. Why do you doubt your senses? Because a little thing affects them. A slight disorder of the stomach. You may be an undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of an underdone potato. There's more of gravy than of grave about you, whatever you are. Scrooge was not much in the habit of cracking jokes, nor did he feel in his heart like joking then. The truth is that he tried to be smart, as a means of distracting his own attention and keeping down his terror. For the spectre's voice disturbed him to the very marrow of his bones. To sit, staring at those fixed, glazed eyes in silence for a moment, Scrooge felt would be unbearable. There was something very awful, too, in the spectre's being provided with an infernal atmosphere of its own. Scrooge could not feel it himself, but this was clearly the case, for though the ghost sat perfectly motionless, its hair and skirts and tassels were still agitated as if by hot vapor from an oven. You see this toothpick? I do. You're not looking at it. But I see it nonetheless. Well, if I swallow this... I might be persecuted by an imaginary legion of goblins, all of my own creation. Humbug, I tell you, humbug. At this, the spirit raised a frightful cry and shook its chain, causing such a frightful noise that Scrooge held on tight to his chair. But how much greater was his horror when the phantom took off the bandage round its head and its lower jaw dropped down upon its chest. Mercy! Dreadful apparition! Why do you trouble me? 
Man of the worldly mind, do you believe in me or not? I do, I must. But why do spirits walk the earth? And why do they come to me? It is required of every man that he should walk among his fellow men. And if that spirit goes not forth in life, it is condemned to do so after death. Doomed to wander through the world and witness what it cannot share, but might have shared on earth. The good it might have done, and the happiness it might have brought to others. Oh, woe is me. You are bound in chains. Tell me why. I wear the chain I forged in life. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I put it on of my own free will, and of my own free will I wore it. Is its pattern strange to you? Would you know the weight and length of the chain you bear yourself? It was full as heavy and as long as this, seven Christmas Eves ago. You have labored on it since. It is a ponderous chain. Scrooge glanced about him on the floor, expecting to find himself surrounded by some fifty or sixty feet of iron cable. But he could see nothing. Oh, Jacob Marley, tell me more. Speak comfort to me, Jacob. I have none to give. It comes from other regions, Ebenezer Scrooge, and is delivered by other ministers to other kinds of men. Nor can I tell you what I wish I could. A very little more is all that is permitted to me. Listen to me. In life, my spirit never walked beyond the narrow limits of our money-changing house. Now I cannot rest, I cannot linger anywhere. Weary journeys lie before me. Seven years dead and traveling all the time? The whole time. No rest, no peace, incessant torture of remorse. You travel fast? On the wings of the wind. You must have covered a lot of ground in seven years. Oh, captive, bound and double-ironed, you cannot see that any Christian spirit working kindly in its little sphere, whatever it may be, will find its mortal life too short to do all it could. You do not realize that no amount of regret can make amends for opportunity missed for good work not done. Yet such was I. But you are always a good man of business, Jacob. Business. Mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business. At this time of year, I suffer most. Why did I walk through crowds of fellow beings with my eyes turned down and never raise them to that blessed star which led the wise men to a savior in a poor, simple home 
Were there no poor simple homes to which its light would have conducted me, what good might I have done? Hear me, Ebenezer, my time is nearly gone. I will, but don't be hard on me, Jacob, please. How is it that I appear before you in a shape that you can see tonight, I cannot tell. I have sat invisible beside you many and many a day. That is just a part of my penance. I am here tonight to warn you that you have yet a chance and hope of escaping my fate. A chance and hope that I secured, Ebenezer. You are always a good friend to me. Thank you. You will be visited by three spirits. Is that the chance and hope you mentioned, Jacob? It is. I, I think I'd rather not. Without their visits, you cannot hope to avoid the path that I tread. Expect the first tomorrow, when the bell tolls one. Couldn't I take them all at once and have it over, Jacob? Expect the second on the next night at the same hour. The third on the next night, when the last stroke of twelve has ceased to vibrate. Look to see me no more. And for your own sake, remember what has passed between us. The apparition walked backward from him, and at every step it took, the window raised itself a little, so that when the spectre reached it, it was wide open. It beckoned at Scrooge to approach, which he did. He became aware of noises in the air, sounds of lamentation and regret, wailings of inexpressible sorrow. The spectre, after listening for a moment, joined in the mournful dirge and floated out upon the bleak, dark night. Scrooge looked out. The air was filled with phantoms, wandering in restless haste, moaning as they went. Every one of them wore chains like Marley's ghost. Many had been personally known to Scrooge in their lives. He had been quite familiar with one old ghost with a monstrous iron safe attached to its ankle who cried at being unable to help a wretched woman with an infant that it saw below on a doorstep. The source of their misery was that they wanted to do good and had lost the power to do so. Soon these creatures faded into mist, or mist enshrouded them, he could not tell, but the night became as it had been when he walked home. Scrooge closed the window and examined the door by which the ghost had entered. It was double-locked, as he had locked it with his own hands, and the bolts were undisturbed. He tried to say humbug, but stopped at the first syllable. And, because of the emotion he had undergone, or the fatigues of the day, or his glimpse of the invisible world, or the dull conversation of the ghost, or the lateness of the hour, he was much in need of rest and went straight to bed without undressing and fell asleep upon the instant. The first of four episodes of A Christmas Carol, presented by The Joy FM, adapted from Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol by Dave Cruz, directed by Dave Cruz and Chris Byerly. Voice work by Dave Cruz, Chris Byerly, and Bill Martin. Sound design by Chris Byerly. Music and Foley effects from Epidemic Sound. The Joy FM presents Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, a four-part limited series podcast available to you wherever you listen to podcasts.